Father, we uh, praise you for, um, we praise you for because of who you are and uh, all your good works, um, your good character, that uh, you are who you say you are, um, that you are sure to your promises, that you never slumber, you never sleep, that you came to seek and save the lost. And we thank you, Lord, that now that we have been found, you don't leave us by ourselves. that you have sealed us with the Holy Spirit. You've uh, put that mark on us, in us, to claim us as your own. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us understanding of your word, that you convict us of sin, that you uh, prompt us and strengthen us towards obedience. And I thank you, Father, that uh, if justifying us, making us innocent wasn't enough, that you adopted us into your forever family, and that we are your sons and daughters um, in whom you are pleased because of uh, Jesus' finished work on the cross, that we are united in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And guys, I prayed last service, I, I pray it more fervently now that... Um, that I, I need you this morning. Um, Lord, as I need you every morning. But I, uh, I pray, God, that you would uh, make sense of five chapters of Scripture in 35, 40 minutes. And I pray, Lord, that there's anything here that I haven't already cut out. God, I pray that you would have me cut it out if it's not edifying to this body and it doesn't bring you glory. And I pray that you would also prompt me to, uh, to recall other scriptures that might bring edification to this body. So thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for um, that we get to see at the end of the story. And even along the way, we get to see that the, that the answers uh, to his anguish aren't in asking why, but in knowing who. And we thank you that ultimate wisdom and understanding is not in research uh, but it's in uh, knowing uh, the triune God, the Alpha and the Omega. So God, have your way with us here this morning. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Great. It's fun to have a, a child dedication. Um, just a warning. I don't know how long 24% lasts on an iPad, but I'm, I'm hoping it lasts for the hour and 20 minutes that I'm preaching. So did Brian tell you that it was an hour and 20 minutes? It's not. Uh, it's less than that. Um, when we hit about 39 minutes, we have people from the back that come in with coffee. So just relax and, and know you'll be taken care of. So we're in the, we're in the book of Job. Uh, we're in the, uh, the fourth sermon of an eight-week sermon series. And, uh, and it's, uh, for, for my heart, it's been good. Uh, the Lord has shown me a lot of false beliefs, actually, um, lies that I've listened to and truth that I'm not prone to believe in at times, particularly when, um, when life, the small aspects of life is not going my way. I wanted to ask you uh, about blessing. If, um, if somebody were to ask you today, yesterday, on a really good day, how are you doing? How are you doing? Might you say, wow, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And what you're thinking through is uh, maybe the, the job that you have that provides well for your family. You might be thinking through the wife or the husband that is stuck with you through thick and thin. 
You might be thinking about the health of you, yourself and your spouse and your, and your kiddos. Um, you might be referring to the country that you live in. But I want to submit to you today that that, that view of blessing is not in the Bible. It is not in God's Word. We, um, it, it brings up a tension, actually, that... that um, that would present God, if we, are, if, if we are to express our blessing in terms of material possessions or health or things that we possess materially here, material, uh, in a material way here, it really reduces God to a genie in a bottle, a genie in a lamp. And what it also does, and maybe more importantly, is that what, what does it do with the um, several hundred million people around the world that live on less than a dollar a day? The several hundred million people around the world that have an average life expectancy of 35 years. Or the people around the world that still got to worry about uh, malaria. So the question isn't, are we blessed or not? The question is, is, is what does blessing look like? What is the accurate des- describer or descriptor, if you will, of blessing? So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. We're going to be actually be all over the place. We're going to be in chapter 27, going through 31. And um, the, the book of Job, for those of you that are new with us, maybe you've never read the book of Job, maybe a reminder for some of you that have been with us the last few weeks, it's an important part of the Bible. It's described as wisdom literature. Um, it's one of, one of several books that are of the genre of, of wisdom literature. Um, but, it's, but, it's a, but it's a really um, different wisdom literature, because, because what we have is a head-on collision with the reality that things don't always play out the way they're supposed to play out. The book of Job obliviates the principles of proverbial wisdom that we often hang on to as promises. You see, per, uh, proverbial wisdom is a, our principles that are tried and true, that it's the way the universe works most of the time. But they're not promises. In Job, we see that a man who lived life well, a man who's a genuine believer in the triune God, this is a man that we're going to meet in heaven. This is not just a moral man. He is certainly moral, but his morality flows out of his righteousness um, in God. So when, when the text talks about his righteousness, it talks about his union with God. So this man was a genuine believer. Uh, He lived life well. He lived according to wisdom more than any other man on the earth at that time. Yet he suffered great calamity. He lost all his possessions. He lost his livelihood. He had to bury all ten of his kids. His wife had a breakdown, kind of freaked out. And to make things worse, that over the last 22 chapters, as we saw from chapter 4 through chapter 22, his friends increased his suffering by being lousy comforters and lousy friends. And then he had, of course, the boils from head to toe. And Job said in his own words at the end of chapter 3 in that great lament, he says, what I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. What he's saying in our vernacular is my worst nightmare has come true. 
my worst nightmare. I'm living my worst nightmare. And this, this book of Job raises for us really deep and anguishing questions, does it not? It forces us to ask, how can a good and sovereign God allow so much suffering in this world, particularly to God's people? How can he allow suffering in the lives of his children? Why is, Job, Job asks a couple of questions um, in his anguish. He says, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter soul? That's, that's in chapter 3. And what he's talking about is, God, why would you allow anybody to come into this life and have to suffer? Why would you allow anybody to go full term? Why would you allow any child to be born and to not be um, abandoned if you know that they're going to suffer? Why, why would you do that? As Job curses his life and asks these deep questions, his three friends step in to provide some comfort and some friendship. They give him um, some form of answers, but their, their answers are flawed. Why are their answers flawed? Because their, their beginning point is flawed. Their worldview that the answers come out of is wrong. It's flawed. You see, their worldview drove their friends' answers. And, and it was based on much of what is true. They had half-truths. They basically said, Job, we know that you reap what you sow. And you're reaping difficulty, so the, therefore you must have sowed sin. Job, you need to humbly look into your own life and see the sin that has befallen you and repent so God can restore you. They were taking proverbial wisdom and they were making promises out of it. They assumed that since the principle is true, that sin leads to suffering, that they could reverse it and say that all suffering means that there was sin. And we know that's not true, don't we? If you look at chapter 9, you see, see Jesus walking by the blind man, and the crowd asked him, what, what did this blind man do, or what did his parents do to deserve the blindness? And Jesus said nothing, that he was made blind so that I might glorify myself. What about the mama that has, that has miscarried, or the parents that have lost a child? It, suffering does not mean necessarily that there was any sin. And we live in a culture today that, that still has the, that we, we live by the promise of sowing and reaping. Speaking of child dedication, we should raise our kids to learn to sow good things so that they might, what, reap good things. But it's a principle. It's not a promise. And our children need to know that. We talked about this last week, but I think we often do the same things ourselves. We look at the chaos and suffering around us and want to turn general principles to promise, trying to bind God by our ability to live moral lives, obligating him in some way to make things go well for us. And in doing so, we give ourselves a sense of control and position ourselves to condemn others. It makes us self-righteous. So that brings us to Job 27. Last week we saw that Job uh, rejected all of his friends' advice because it was bad advice. It was garbage, actually. We see that in chapter 42 where God actually um, rebukes the three friends, telling them that they were wrong and that Job was right. And he went on the, on the um, here in chapter 27, he's going to go on the offensive. He was on the defensive last week. He's going to go on the offensive. And he's going to warn his friends of the fate that those who condemn the innocent will face. As we arrive at chapter 27, we still have Job in the midst of terrible suffering. It's not left him. 
I would guess he still has boils all over his body. His suffering has gotten worse because not only are his kids still dead, not only does he still not have a job and money, not only does his wife still tell him to curse God and die, but now his three best friends are telling him that there must be some type of sin, that he's at fault for all the calamity that has come upon him. What we're going to see this morning is that God, that in God's silence, we don't get any answers today, really. If you look hard, there are some answers, but it's not the answers that Job is looking for. The answer to the why escapes Job, and anger starts to overtake him. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you ask why, and it's legitimate. You're not like shaking your hand at God, like running from him, but you're going, God, I don't understand. This is hard. This is painful. I want to understand. Why are you doing what you're doing? In Job's case, he does become angry with God. And at the end of this section, he demands that God stand on trial and justify himself. These are Job's final words in these five chapters. In fact, we're told at the end of chapter 3140, the words of Job are ended. He drops the mic, and he walks away. He has a couple of short responses to, uh, to God after God speaks. But these, this is his final defense. This is his final appeal. So today we're going to look at chapters 30, 27 through 31, where we'll witness Job's final defense and his appeal to his friends and to God. And, and there's three main sections here. Section one, number one is in chapter 27, where Job enters his plea of innocence. It says that he actually signs the docket. He signs his innocence away, saying, I'm, I am completely innocent before God and everybody. Section 2, which is chapter 28, is the search for wisdom. It's where, it's where the, uh, uh, Job and the narrator uh, describe um, both Job's and his friend's search for wisdom. In section 3, um, Job puts God on trial and demands an answer. And that's really in sections 29 through 30, or chapters 29 through 31. So chapters 27 and 28 are addressed primarily to, to the friends. Job is talking to the friends. And in chapters 29 through 31, um, Job is addressing primarily God. All right, let's look at chapter 27. And um, just so you know, if you're new with us here today, um, or if you've been with us, oftentimes we have scripture up here. We're not going to have it this morning because I didn't get it to them on time. Um, in fact, I didn't get it to them at all. Um, so if you have your Bible or iPhone or iPad, open up to Job 27, and uh, we're going to be sticking um, in Job primarily. Uh, Job chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right? And the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right, speaking to his friends. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. What Job is doing here is he is swearing in as he prepares to make his final defense and appeal. God lives, he says, and God has taken away all my perceived rights. I felt like I had a right to 10 healthy kids. I felt like I had a right to a certain reputation, a certain business. It said, as God lives, God has taken away all my perceived rights. And then he says, the Almighty has done this to me. 
And he says, I'll tell you the truth and I will not utter deceit. I'm not lying, he says. He says, I will not cave in and admit sin that I have not committed. It might make you guys feel better, but I didn't do it. I will not compromise my integrity. He, he, God, has examined my heart and has found no sin in me. Very similar to David's prayer in in Psalm 139, 24. Job is entering his plea of innocence. If he acknowledges sin, he is a liar and he compromises his integrity. He's not being stubborn. He says, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. Believe me. In verses 7 through 10, in verse 7, he speaks about his friends now being his enemies. His friends, his comforters, are now his enemies who are wicked. He's describing them as wicked, and he warns them of judgment. In verses 11 through 12, he then turns to instruct them on how God deals with the wicked. In the remainder of the chapter, he speaks about judgments that will come upon all wickedness, judgments that are remarkably like Job's own sufferings. So that's why it's confusing. And unlike his friends, Job is not referring solely to what the wicked receive on earth, but what the wicked or the enemy will receive in eternity. Verse verse 8, he would be cut off from God. What Job is in effect saying is that with all of their wisdom, and they've got a lot of wisdom, and with all their counsel, they only speak foolishly in their condemnation of Job. Their worldview, as, as much comfort as it gives them, is too small to really account for what's happening to Job. We know the story. We've got to cut the friends some slack at some level, right? They, they are working from a, a certain worldview. They don't know God's heart. We, they don't know Job's heart. We know Job's heart. Because we've got to pull back the curtain in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and see the heavenly realm. That Job is blameless. He is upright. He is righteous. There is nobody like him. So we got to cut the friends a little bit of slack. Not much. So their worldview brings them comfort, but it really does not account for what's happening to Job. And they just bring condemnation upon themselves by continuing to assert that Job must have had some sin in his heart. Otherwise, he would not be reaping pain. There's a big shift in the text in chapter 28. It's where we have the great poem speaking about wisdom. Here at the conclusion of the failure of the friend's wisdom, we have a description about the search for wisdom and how elusive it is. In chapter 3, Job asks the question, why? Why, God, is this happening to me? Why am I suffering? And now there's a sense that, that he's asking the question, God, why aren't you answering my question, why? Where are you? Why can't I hear from you? Why are you silent? Why am I alone? Job is looking for wisdom that explains why he is suffering and why he's not being answered. His friends say it's only because he's an unrepentant sinner. That's what his friends say. He also seems to be calling his friends to to consider that maybe God's wisdom was beyond their comprehension. You think there's a chance of that? That God's wisdom is just a little bit beyond what his friends think? Chapter 28. You'd really title chapter 28, Searching for Wisdom. That's the theme of this chapter. The wisdom of God is not gained by natural or theoretical knowledge. What God does not reveal, we can't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says what? The secret things belong to the Lord. And in this chapter 28, it unfolds in three parts or three movements. Part one, we see the skill, the ingenuity, and the limited wisdom of man. That men, mankind, humanity, that we have a ton of wisdom. 
We have more wisdom than any other creature that has ever walked the earth. If you turn to chapter 28, verses 1 through 11, I'm going to read this as well. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in the valley away from, from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. The path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. The man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings to light. Job starts off by testifying in chapter 28 to the human skill and wisdom that can find everything of value on this earth. It's symbolized by the ability to find minerals and Jews on the earth and Jews, jewels on there. They're going to find Jews later. They're finding jewels right now, actually. Um, Israel has not yet arrived. The mining process for metals was one of the high, was, was the height of, of human wisdom and achievement in that day. And how human ingenuity is able to dig into the earth, to search out under the mountains where no creature goes, to dam underground rivers and mine out the hardest to reach and most valuable things. That was wisdom, great wisdom, great ingenuity in that day and age. And as, as humans, we've got more ingenuity and wisdom, it says in verse 7, than the birds of the air, or verse 8, or the beasts of the earth. And he, he actually calls out a lion. Job speaks of, of humanity, <clears throat> knowing the path to and the place to mine the greatest things of the earth. Don't miss this. Job speaks of humanity knowing the path and knowing the place of great riches. We're going to talk about that in a minute. minute. Humans are given much wisdom, wisdom and can accomplish much. Part 2, verses 12 through 22. Wisdom is priceless and unobtainable at the same time. Wisdom is priceless yet unobtainable at the same time. Verse 12 says this, but where shall we find wisdom and where is the place of understanding? We've talked about the big but before. It shows up a lot in scripture. And whenever you see a but in scripture, for the most part, it comes before God's great works. It, it talks about, it, before it's talking about things that are impossible. And it goes, but God, but God. And he says here, but where shall wisdom be found? It's not in the mountains. It's not in the riches. It's not in the jewels. It's not in the research. Men can do all of this, described in verses 1 through 11, but where is wisdom and understanding found? Where can we discover the answer to the deep questions that suffering like Job's has confronted us with? The poem then asserts that human ingenuity cannot find wisdom. And then in verses 13 through 18, he answers where it can be found. Or excuse me, where it can't be found first. 
verses 13 through 18. It's not found in the land of the living. It's not found on this earth or on those that dwell in it. Human ingenuity can't figure out wisdom on their own. No matter how far we dig, no matter how deep we dive into the seas, no, no, no matter how far we go into the galaxies, we can't find wisdom. Verses 15 through 19 shows how wisdom can't be purchased. You can't spend all the money you want on whatever you think will teach you to live well in this world. But, or you can, I'm sorry, but you can't buy wisdom. Uh, like degrees, um, young ones, are a good thing. If you choose to go to college, that's a good and noble thing. But you will not find ultimate wisdom in any degree, not in multiple degrees. doesn't mean they're bad, but it means that you cannot purchase wisdom at any cost. Verses 20 through 22, he then reveals his conclusion. Where can you find it? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living. Wisdom escapes us. Even if you could ask the dead, it says, they've only heard a rumor of wisdom. They don't know where it is. Here's Job's statement, basically. All of the human ingenuity, all of human effort, all of human knowledge, all of human research will never grant humanity in and of itself the wisdom that we need to live well in this life and answer the deep questions of suffering. No, no matter how deep we look into the sea, no matter how many spaceships we send to the moon and to the galaxies, that we will never know ultimate wisdom unless the Lord reveals it to us. We actually see this all around us. Over the last hundred years, it's been the greatest century of ingenuity in the history of the earth, has it not? Think of everything that's been fun. I mean, I've, I've heard rumors of iPhone 8 recently. And I think what it'll do, actually, is that it will actually greet people at the front door. It'll make the coffee. I think it'll even give sermons. It's a pretty cool thing. This church can save whatever the church is paying me, um, which I would hate, actually. So I'm going to sabotage that. The last hundred years have seen an explosion of knowledge like, any, like no other century, but I think it works against us. I am a researcher. Um, I don't know what I did before Google. I love Google. Um, I love that we live in a time where I can um, hear about a book. I can go to Amazon. I, can not only ha- I don't even have to wait two days. I can click it on my Kindle, and I can have it now. I love this time and age. But what I really believe is that this, 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 um, this time that we live in where we have knowledge at our fingertips actually creates the potential for more anxiety. It actually uh, creates a false sense of wisdom and understanding. That, that when, we, when, we're, when we're sick, and I'm not, I'm, I do this. When I'm sick or my daughter's sick or my grandkids sick, we're Googling it. That's not a bad thing. But oftentimes what happens is we rely on what we're seeing on the Internet in the books as truth, as ultimate wisdom and understanding. And it drives us away from trusting God rather than to trusting God. Does anybody understand that? Can anybody relate with that at any level? I see a lot of nodding heads. So I've seen how good research actually causes more questions and ultimately causes us to fret and worry and ask more questions rather than seeking ultimate wisdom. Part three in chapter 28, the humbling resolution. So what's the resolution? If we can't find it, verses 23 through 28, the solution to the problem is that God understands the way to wisdom. 
While the poem can thus be read as a freestanding poem, probably many of you have read chapter 28 as a freestanding poem in praise of God's superior wisdom. If we place this poem in the larger context of the 42 chapters of Job, we can see it as expressing a new humility in the part of Job to answer the ultimate mysteries of human existence. For example, the problem of suffering. And the new appreciation for transcendence or, or looking beyond human understanding as opposed to human knowledge. You see, Job is starting to, things are starting to click a little bit. He's starting to click, starting to click a little bit. In verse 23, the divine wisdom necessary to explain Job's suffering was, was inaccessible to man. Only God knew about it because he knows everything, verse 24. True wisdom belongs to the one who is the almighty creator. He weighs the wind. He measures the water. He makes decrees for the rain and the path for the thunder and the lightning, verses 25 through 26. True wisdom belongs to God. One can only know if he declares it to him. You and I can only know ultimate wisdom if he declares it to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. In this chapter, Job's why, you remember the theme? Anybody remember the theme to this book that we put on it? Or the melodic line, if you will, that we've talked about the last few weeks? Here it is. If I can remember it. Answers to our anguish are not found in asking why, but in knowing who. And Job is starting to see that. Job is starting to see that, the, that his answers in his anguish are not, are, the, his, the, the answers to his anguish are not in why, or asking the question why, but knowing who. John Piper has a really neat poem. It's 45 minutes on the book of Job, and I cut out just a really uh, small stanza from it. It's beautiful. And he says this, he says, beware of subtle, shrewd assaults. A half-truth can be wholly false, speaking of his friends. Beware of wisdom made in schools, in proverbs in the mouth of fools. Beware of claims that rise too tall. The upright stand and the wicked fall. Beware the thought that all is vain. In time, God's wisdom will be plain. Ultimate wisdom and understanding are found, ladies and gentlemen, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his suffering that the rest of our suffering makes sense. Jesus is the mystery of wisdom and understanding, according to Colossians 2, 2 through 3. All the treasures of wisdom are found in the mystery of the cross of Christ. And then Job 28, 28 tells us that it is in the fear of the Lord. Let me read Job 28, 28. God answers. This is God's voice. And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and turn away from evil, and that is understanding. Job 28, 28 tells us that it is in the fear of the Lord, which is the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's law. That's what fearing it is. It's, it's reverently and fervently and uh, and, and, uh, and affectionately bowing down and saying, God, what, wherever you lead, I will follow. Whatever you say, I will do. Not to gain anything, because I, but because I possess everything in Christ Jesus. That fear is expressed in a commitment to walk in obedience and live in daily repentance as we depart from evil. That's the secret. Let's look at chapters 29 through 31. 
And I just want to give you a heads up. <clears throat> We're going to be about five, ten minutes late. Okay? And I tell you that. Here's why I tell you that. It's just because I can't lie. I'm a man of integrity. Actually, none of you would even know when the service got over if I didn't tell you, so I'm really just making it worse by telling you. In these three chapters, Job takes up his final discourse. It's the last time Job will speak, except for a couple of times at the end, as I already mentioned. In chapter 29, Job remembers the position of blessing that he once had. This is really a self-portrait of, of uh, the way things used to be. And I think guys do this a lot more than gals. Uh, honey, you should have saw me back in the day. I only had size 36 jeans. I could throw the ball, I could throw a spiral, bench press X amount. Chapter 29 is a self-portrait of Job's life before calamity struck. It's very much a lament as he recalls and reflects on the good old days. The realities of his own words in chapter 28 have not yet taken over his mind. He had a beautiful poem that he recited in chapter 28, and he started moving towards not asking the why question anymore, but, but seeing the who answer. He was starting to see that God is the answer, that it's found in his salvation. But he, these, the truth of 28 is stuck in his mind. It's not in his heart. The realities of his own words have not fully taken effect. So he swings back to despair, and he, refers, he rehearses his life as it was back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is a common place to go if you've ever had suffering. It's a common place to go. I remember when. I remember when I was still married. I remember when my child was still alive. I remember back when, before I was let go from my job. And it's easy to think about the good old days, the dis disappointments in life. I don't blame Job. Job couldn't see anything other than what he had lost. And the same is true in these chapters. He misses in verses 1 through 5. He misses in verse 2 when God watched over him. Verse 3, when God guided his steps. Verse 4, when everything was clicking and God was his friend. Verse 5, he misses that God and his children were with him. Brothers and sisters, God never left him. God's never left him. And if you are in suffering, God has never left you. It may feel like it. God was still with Job, even though Job couldn't see it. In verses 11 through 17, um, he describes now why the young and old and the princes and the nobles called him blessed. When he would walk into the gates of the city and he would walk in there, everybody would stand and they would have silence and they would listen to his words. It says that they would actually drink his words like opening your mouth to drink from rain. And here's why they respected him so much. In verse 12, he delivered the poor and the fatherless. He was blessed by dying men who's, who's, uh, who knew that he was going to take care of their widows. He says, I lived out my righteousness. He says, I helped the blind, I helped the lame, verse 15. I was a father to the needy, verse 16. I defended the innocent, verse 17. In the verse, verses 18 through 20, he said this. He says, I thought it was going to be different. I thought it was going to be different. God, I know you love me. I love you. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I thought it was going to be different. 
I thought I would have a long life. I thought I would die in my nest, in my house, with my family all around me. I thought my descendants and my influence would last forever, that the branches would go out forever with fresh dew on them. And brothers and sisters, we know this. Upright living does not necessarily correspond to being blessed in return, at least in the way that we imagine it. Verses 21 through 25, he picks up where he left off at the city gate, verses 7 and 8, and he remembers how he is respected and esteemed. Let's go to verse chapter 30. Now he moves on from the memory of his glory days to a lament over his present sufferings. In remembering the good old days, it made Job's pain worse. And in chapter 30, Job once again slips into lament over his present sufferings. Christopher Ash says this. He says in chapter 29, Job's life, in chapter 29, it described the life under the smile of God. In chapter 30, it throbs with the drumbeat of the terrible wrath of God. Job is saying, in essence, I long for my ideal past, but all I can experience is my hellish present. He's a laughing stock of younger men, verse 1. He says, I've, been their, I'm, I've become their song. They're, they're making songs about me to make fun of me. Verse 15, chapter 30. If you take a look at that really quick, this is important. What Job is saying here, he says, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as, it w- as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Folks, if our identity is in how other people dignify us and honor us and esteem us, at some point we're going to be sorely disappointed. You see, Job's dignity and honor have not left him. Even though nobody honors him anymore, that he received his dignity and his honor uh, by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He didn't know Jesus, but he trusted in God. And then verse 20, I want to read this. He says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Job cries out to help, and God does not answer him. And if you contrast that with chapter 28 and chapter 29, where he helped the widows, he helped the needy, he helped the orphans, he helped the widows, and now his time of need, God is not helping him. He is in a lonely place. And I would suspect that what he's experienced in this verse 20 is worse than anything that's ever happened. It's worse than losing his kids. Is that he feels alone, rejected, and forsaken by God. And believer, no matter what you're going through now or whatever you might go through in the past, that God, if you know Jesus, will never abandon you. That God abandoned Jesus on the cross. He forsook Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that he will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. In fact, he is near to the brokenhearted. He is probably nearer to you in your suffering than he was and is in your prosperity. God won't always take us out of the storm, but he'll always take us through the storm. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India who ran an orphanage in uh, experienced a lot of suffering herself. She said this. She says it's, it's an accepting what God has given, suffering, 
that God gives himself. It's in accepting what God has given you that God gives himself. And brothers and sisters, no matter what you have, if you've got the best job, the best wife, the best husband, the best kids, the biggest bank account, that's all good stuff. But where ultimate blessing is found, you are the most, if you know Jesus Christ, you are already the most blessed people on the planet. That you are blessed because of your standing, your eternal standing as God's adopted children. Our blessing is this. I know a God who gives hope to the homeless, hopeless. I know a God who loves the unlovable. And then the end of chapter 30, Job's whole worldview has been shattered by God's actions in afflicting him. He's angered at God's silence. And I'm not going to spend much time in chapter 31. We're just going to just go over it really quickly because it doesn't require much explanation. But here in chapter 31, Job asserts his innocence. It's his final appeal. It's his final defense. He signs and he says, I am innocent. And then he puts God on the stand. He puts God on the stand and he says, God, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to this? This is Job's last attempt to defend himself before both God and man. And then there's the bold surprise at the end, verses 35 and 37, our last two verses, last three verses. Job enters his final plea of innocence. He issues a formal complaint. Oh, that there would be a judge to hear my case. Let the Almighty show up on the stand and defend himself for the way that I've been mistreated. I'm innocent of any crimes, and yet I'm being punished. Let God answer for these crimes. And with that, Job drops a mic, and he takes a seat. So what do we make with all this? What do we do with it? We can't forget chapter 28 that was stuck in the middle. Job, in all of his wisdom, couldn't make sense of how he expected good, how he expected good and evil to come. He couldn't make sense of how he expected light and darkness to come. He couldn't make sense of God's sovereignty and goodness and his incredible suffering. He demanded that God stand on trial and defend his wisdom. Colossians 2.3 tells us this, that in Christ are, the, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The central guiding wisdom that governs the universe was displayed most clearly through Jesus Christ on the, Jesus Christ on the cross because we all deserve to suffer. Every human being, and this is so hard, moms, dads, grandparents, but this is what God's word says, that every one of us is a sinner, that we're a sinner and we sin. These precious children up here were born into sin. They are beautiful blessings who are children of wrath. And because Jesus came, because he emptied himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he emptied himself and willingly and obediently uh, put himself to death so that anyone who would believe in him, anyone who would acknowledge their sin and believe that, all, that he took all of our sin, past, present, and future on the cross, would be the most blessed people on the planet. You see, God does not justify himself in the moment. 
He will not justify himself on that stand. But he sent his only begotten son so that who would ever believe in him would have eternal innocence, justification. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your holy word. Um, thank you that um, thank you that we that that the secret things do belong to you, God. That we um, that um, you know us. That if we were able to uh, figure things out, uh, we would go our own way. And I thank you that, that the mystery of wisdom and understanding is best seen on the cross of Christ. That because of our sin, um, every one of us deserve death. But because of the cross, because of faith in the perfect life and sacrificial death and miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, that none will perish that believe in those truths. And I thank you, Jesus, that you suffered so that we would never experience the greatest suffering that man would ever experience. We thank you, Jesus, that you drank the cup of wrath that 